Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. I'll never forget the first time that I had another Christian challenge me to share my faith with people, to, to go evangelize. I don't know if you've ever done that before. I was in college and there was a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ that most of you probably know about. And they had this tract and they taught me the tract, gave me the tract and said, we want you to go out and share your faith. And I would describe that feeling of going out to share my faith as a mixture of like uh, complete dread and total intimidation. Do y'all, do y'all know what I'm talking about? Like when you feel like, ah, like that feeling, but I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to be a good Christian. So I'm acting very like calm and confident, but deep down inside, I'm praying that we don't see a single soul on campus that day because I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm going to say, right? I had all the, the fears and all the feelings. And it's not that I didn't love Jesus. I, I was a, a new believer, a fairly new believer, and I'd had a 180 degree change in my life. Like I was sold out for the Lord. I wanted to follow him. I loved to read the word. I loved to pray. I loved worship. I loved being with God's people. I, I was a growing believer. I loved Jesus, but sharing my faith absolutely freaked me out. Totally freaked me out. And deep down inside, I think it was the questions of what if they reject me? What if they ask a question that I don't know how to answer, right? Or, or, or on a college campus, what if they actually know more about Christianity than I do? And they use intellectual judo to like break me in half and destroy my faith, right? That's the kind of fears that I'm having inside as I think about the scary E-word, evangelism. That's what we're going to talk about today. So this gospel tool that we're sharing with you guys, is just a, it's, it's, it's an acronym. It's a simple tool that you can use just to be reminded of the things that God calls us to do as followers of Jesus. It's a, it's a summary. It's not checklist Christianity. It's not, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, six to get to heaven. It's none of that, right? This is how we live out of the new heart that Jesus gives to us. And the, the G stands for uh, grow in the truth. We talked about reading the scripture. The O stands for obey what you learned. We talked about obedience, just taking the things that we're seeing in scripture and applying them to our lives. The S stands for serve others. The P stands for pray about everything. We talked about that last week of how we we exhale anxiety and we breathe in the air of prayer, the air of heaven, the the peace of God. But this week, we're going to talk about the E, evangelize the lost. Evangelize the lost. Next week, we'll finish with love one another. But today, evangelize the lost. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to uh, turn there with me. We're going to be in uh, kind of a longer portion. I'm going to be reading this. 
hang with me, you can do it, okay? It's going to be a little bit longer portion. We're going to be jumping into the middle of a story, and let me just tell you where we're jumping in. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to his disciples and to 500 others. He spent over 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God, preparing them. He ascends to the Father, and he says, wait, go to the city and wait and pray. And he, he sends the Holy Spirit. Y'all, y'all know the story of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost comes and they hear the sound of this mighty rushing wind, a violent wind, and they see the tongues of fire appear on the, on the, the, the disciples' heads and they go out and thousands of people hear the sound and this massive crowd comes out in Jerusalem, which happens to be full of people and God's providence, people from all over the known world have come back for the feast of Pentecost. And it's this beautiful moment. We're going to read what in my Bible is head, the heading says Peter's sermon. Peter stands up and he speaks to this crowd of people. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He quotes from the prophet Joel uh, chapter 2. It says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on both on where am I? <laughs> on both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He keeps going. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says, now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. He says, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You've revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Hang with me. Verse 29, he keeps going. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to see one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. 
God raised this, raised, has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this key verse. We're all witnesses of this. Verse 33, therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, he quotes again, Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Thankfully, we didn't have to read the whole rest of the other words. Many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. This is the word of the Lord. And the very first church was a megachurch. <laughs> 3,000 people. Can you imagine now, why did I make you read that whole portion? The reason why is that this was an incredibly evangelistic moment that we see in the scriptures, an incredibly fruitful evangelistic moment where 3,000 people hear the message and respond to what Peter is saying. What I want us to do today is just not dive into all the little things that he says in there. We can't we don't have time to unearth all that. I want you to think about what happens in this moment. I want you to kind of think big picture, like the meta story that's happening in this passage. When we talk about the word evangelize, it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel or the gospel. That's how it's translated in your Bible. If you were to go back to the original language, you'd find that word that we have transliterated to evangelism. It means the gospel. Now, the word gospel comes from the Anglo-Saxon word, which is Godspell, which literally meant good story. Godspell, good story. That's what the word gospel means. And so to evangelize is to, to proclaim, to tell, or to preach the good story or the, the good news of Jesus, right? It, it includes the creation and the fall and sin and guilt and Christ and cross and resurrection and the redemptive purpose of God and judgment and eternal life and all the stuff that Peter has woven into this incredible sermon, but what about the word lost? We're talking about the word, you know, we're talking about the phrase evangelize the lost. What do we mean when we say lost? Because, you know, there's that bumper sticker that says, not all who wander are lost. Have y'all seen that before? That's actually a, a Tolkien quote. And that's from, uh, I think it might be from the Lord of the Rings. Am I right on that? The Lord of the Rings? Do you know? No? Okay. Well, Tolkien was a devout follower of Jesus. And he wrote that phrase, not all who wander are lost. Because when you say, man, 
We're to evangelize the lost. People are like, that's really derogatory. Like, why would you say lost? It sounds insulting. Where do we get the term lost? Well, we get that term from Jesus. There's a story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. A wee little man was he who climbed up into the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Y'all know the song, the old song, maybe some of you. And he meets Jesus in the whole town grumbles. The whole town is, they're like, why is he with him? And Jesus says to them, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost, the lost. There's another time where Jesus tells the parable of the good shepherd and he talks about the sheep that have gone and he leaves the 99 to go get the one lost sheep. Jesus is where we get the, the word lost from. It, it simply means that there are people who are meant to be with the Lord, but are not with him, and they don't know the way to be with him. They're lost. So that's what we mean when we say evangelize the lost. And the first thing that I want us to understand as you look at the big picture of this story, is that evangelism occurs when your testimony meets a God-ordained opportunity. Evangelism occurs, I think I have a slide for that, Zach. Evangelism occurs when your testimony meets a God-ordained opportunity. A few years ago, I got to go to Cuba, and beautiful place, beautiful people. We got to go visit with uh, national leaders for underground church movements that are happening there because of communism and the state-run churches. They are, are basically starting churches that are under the radar, and it's amazing to see what God is doing. And they had us go one day, share the gospel on these streets of a city called Santa Clara. And so they put us with a, an interpreter and we're going around the streets, and we notice there's this other group of people that are all doing the same thing. It turns out the Jehovah's Witnesses are there at the same time, which feels like this sort of battle. And if you don't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, it's, it sounds like Christianity, but it's pseudo-Christianity. And, and the difference is that they do not acknowledge the deity of Jesus. He's, not, he, he's the highest created being, but he's not Lord and Messiah. Okay, he's not the word who was in the beginning. And so they're out sharing their faith, and we're supposed to be out sharing our faith, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. We're dodging Jehovah's Witnesses. We can see them with their like, crosses and their books, and we're like, oh, you know, stay away. And we're trying to find the other people, and we're meeting people, and, and you know, some people are like, yeah, no, whatever, thanks. But then there's these two ladies standing outside of their house, Victoria and Mercedes. And I walk up, and I introduce myself through the translator. And I'm an American visiting from Texas, because Texas is the coolest place to be in America, right? Amen? I mean, come on. I'm from Texas, right? That's my, that's my little shoe in. And in the introduction, I say, can I share my story with you? They say, yes. And I begin to share my testimony with them. And they're listening. They're following along. I'm telling them all about how God turned my life around and what Jesus did and how when I was young, I didn't know about Jesus and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. I'm sharing the whole thing with them. And at the end, I say, 
do you, do you want to receive Christ's forgiveness and believe in him? And inside I'm thinking, that was the lamest, like the lamest testimony ever given on planet earth. Like there's, there's no way, there's no way that they're going to say yes. And they look at me and then they look at each other and they look back at me and they go, yes. And so I got to lead them in prayer. They give their lives to Jesus. We hug, we talk. They tell me all about their family, show me pictures. We pray for their daughter. I mean, it's just amazing, amazing time. And what happened was that my testimony met with a God-ordained opportunity. Think about the story we just read. God tees up a moment, right? The, the, the wind blows, the, the tongues of fire appear, and, and everyone's like, what is happening? And there's curiosity, there's intrigue. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. And God tees up this moment for his disciples to stand up and to share. And that's how it is in evangelism. There's this intersection of curiosity where you meet that with your testimony. The intersection of curiosity and testimony, it's, it's the word that we call a divine appointment. Have you ever heard that before, divine appointment? It's when God has something on your calendar that you don't have on your calendar. And, and you bump into that friend that you've been praying for. A, a stranger just begins to open up to you and tell you about their life. And you just... Talk to them and listen and share. A coworker asks you about your faith. It's these, these unexpected moments. And I was thinking about Victoria and Mercedes. I had planned to be there, but I had no idea who I was going to meet. I had no idea there was going to be Jehovah's Witnesses everywhere. But God had a divine appointment. And I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. If you're a follower of Jesus, God wants to use you. He wants to speak his story through your lips. The second thing that I want you to see is that evangelism reveals Jesus from common reference points. It reveals Jesus from common reference points. If you think about what Peter does in that passage, is he begins to point to the prophet Joel. Now, who's he talking to? Fellow Jews. That's what he says. People from all over the world that believe in God, that, that follow the way of Judaism, have come back. And he says, fellow Jews, let me explain what's happening here. Joel, your prophet, here's what he says. Boom, hits him with that. Then he says, Jesus, he, 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 he did all these wonders among you. You saw it. Don't you remember the stories? You've heard on the streets about what he did, his crucifixion. He points to current events, and then he points to King David, quoting his scriptures, referencing his grave. They're in the city of David. He was one of their most beloved patriarchs. He's pointing to the reference points of their culture, their life, and saying, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And that's what we do when we evangelize is we're 
revealing Jesus from common reference points. Uh, one of the things that we do as a family is we watch uh, movies together. I don't know if you guys watch movies with your families. We have like family movie night. And um, we're, we've, we've worked our way up to Star Wars, okay? That was one of the things we did during the pandemic. I know we had May the 4th be with you this past week. Maybe you guys watched some Star Wars. So we watched the whole, like, I don't know how many movies there are. How many, is it six tonight? Six movies? Six movies? We watched all six. And some of them were not very good, okay? I'm just going to say that out loud. But my kids loved it. We had a great time. And here's the dorky pastor thing that I do, Okay? And you can borrow this if you want. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. Is whenever we watch a movie, I just point out gospel elements in the story. I know my kids probably get a little bit annoyed with me sometimes. They're like, man, did you see what happened with that villain right there? That's like the devil. (laughs) You know? There's a battle going, a spiritual battle going on. It's crazy, you know? Or, or, or there's the character's responses, and one of them like, totally gets self-centered and does their own thing, and then the other one like, sacrifices themselves, and it's like, man, that's like Jesus is the one that sacrificed for us, but, but we, we tend to be selfish, but he's the hero of the story. And all I'm doing is taking the reference point that we're all engaging in and just saying, do you see Jesus in that? Why? Because we have emotions and feelings about what's happening in the story. And I think that sometimes we read the Bible and it's like, uh, I don't understand. But then we watch a movie and we're like, we're so connected with what's happening. And just trying to help them understand, do you see Jesus? It's like what the Bible says. I'm just drawing their attention to Jesus in the story. We're dot connectors. Believers in Christ, when it comes to evangelism, you're dot connectors. When someone shares this thing, and then that thing, and then that thing, you, you have a, the ability to say, oh, but do you see, do you see what maybe God's doing here in your life? And I believe if we would listen to people, we'd hear the dots that we can connect. Evangelism reveals Jesus from common reference point. The third thing I want you to know from the story, evangelism isn't high-pressure selling. It's spirit-emboldened telling. Isn't that good news? How many of you have been at the car dealership, and they bring you into the office, and you start sweating, and you're like, oh my gosh, right? I'm just asking for like $1,000 off. And they're like, eh, you know, it's just like this big, like the pressure is on. That's not evangelism. Amen? Amen. Nobody wants to feel like a Jesus salesman, right? I don't. I, I don't think you do either. We're not trying to corner someone to sign the dotted line. That's not what this is about. In fact, I I found an infographic from the the Barna group. I think I have a slide for this as well. And this is something that I share in our greenhouse uh, leadership equipping track. And the next one, so you can see at the top, it says generational differences in faith sharing. I thought that was fascinating. The next slide is a little bit zoomed in, if y'all want to go to the next slide. And, And this was so cool. So it says... That first one, it says, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. And so for the millennials, 96% were like, yep, that's true. For the Gen X, they, 97% were like, yes, that's true. 
For the boomers, 95%. For the elders, 95% of the people said, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. The, the second one was the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Again, like everyone's like, yes, 94% for millennials, 97% for Gen X, 97% for boomers, 97% for elders. Everyone's like, yes, that's the best thing that could ever happen. This third one, when someone raises, raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. Everyone has a healthy self-image here. They're like 86% are like, sure, I can do that. Right, 90% of the Gen X, 92% of the boomers, and 89% of elders were like, yeah, I know how to share my faith. That's great. The, um, the next one, I am gifted at sharing my, my faith with other people. A lot of people were like, yeah, I'm pretty gifted. Again, healthy self-image, praise God. But here's where it gets interesting. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47% of millennials said, yes, it's wrong to do that. 27% of Gen X were like, yeah, that's wrong. 19% of the boomers and 20% of the elders agreed or somewhat agreed that it's wrong to share your faith with someone hoping that they would believe what you're telling them. Where's the disconnect? What's happening here? I think there's a problem. If Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus says that to his people, go and make disciples, we're like, it's wrong to do that. There's some kind of disconnect that's happening. And I think that secularism has eclipsed scriptural conviction for many Christians. The spirit of the age has discipled the disciples of Jesus. The cultural value and definition of quote-unquote tolerance tells us that it's wrong to share our faith with someone in the hopes that they will convert to become followers of Jesus. And I just want to know, where are the spirit-emboldened followers of Jesus who say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We need the Spirit of God to fall again on his people that we might testify. We're not selling anything. There's no pressure to make someone sign a dotted line, but it is Spirit-emboldened telling. Peter, <laughs> just before, about about 45 days probably before this moment that we read, Peter is denying Jesus because a young girl questions him. Not me, no, no, not me, I wasn't with him. And now Jesus, I mean, now Peter, filled with the spirit of God, stands up before a massive crowd and shares the gospel. The difference is that he had the spirit of God in him. Spirit emboldened, telling, lastly, 
We do the telling. God does the turning. Let me say it again. We do the telling, and God does the turning. This is so freeing. Here's what this means. You can go into the streets of Santa Clara, Cuba, and share the lamest testimony in the world, and someone will say, yes. You know why? Because it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my story. It wasn't about the cleanliness of my presentation. It was about the Spirit of God working inside of a person when they heard about Jesus, something in them said, yes. Because God was doing the turning while I was doing the telling. So when we have those fears of, what if they don't believe when I tell them? What if they avoid me at the office after I say something about this, right? What if they reject me completely? What if I say it wrong? In those moments, we must remember that we're just doing the telling, but it's God who does the turning. In verse 39, Peter says here, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. I think he's talking about us. As many as the Lord our God will call. God's calling. God's calling people. But he's calling them while you're telling them about Jesus. This this is our guarantee, but it also means that the pressure is off. When you, tell your, when you share your faith, because you're just the teller, you're not the turner. The pressure is off. You're just the teller. The results are in God's hands. So evangelism occurs when your testimony meets a God-ordained opportunity. It reveals Jesus from common reference points, connecting the dots. It's not high-pressure selling. It's spirit-emboldened telling. It invites the personal response And we can rest knowing that our part is to do the telling and God's part is to do the turning. I want to just close with some application. Like, okay, maybe some of you are thinking, I should talk to people about my faith. He's right. That's that's part of what God calls us to do as disciples. Let's talk about how. What's your story? How would you say it. How would you tell someone your story? I, I want to teach you a simple way so that some, someone else taught me, and it's helped me so much. It's actually what I shared with Mercedes and Victoria, and it's called three words. I think I have a slide for this, Zach, if you want to put this up. Three words. And what I want you to do is think about feeling words, okay? Feeling words. Like, what did it feel like? And, and so, number one, what did it feel like before coming to know Christ? What was that like for you? If you're a believer in the room and, and you had that moment in your life, some of you maybe believed when you were a child and you're like, man, I don't remember back that far. But maybe there was a point in your life where you just kind of wandered away doing your own thing and then things got really, really rocky and terrible and you kind of had that turning point in your life. What was that like? What did it feel like before you knew Christ? My words are empty and angry. 
That's how I describe myself, empty and angry. Second, what did you feel when you surrendered your life to Christ? What did you feel when you surrendered your life to Christ? You, you, you know that, that moment where like everything clicked? Some of you, that was like, man, on this day, at this time, at, at, on this year, I prayed and you know, the heavens opened and the angels sang, right? You, you have that moment. Some of you have just like, there was a, a season of life, but man, here's what it felt like for me. So from my, my words are forgiven and clean. I felt forgiven and clean. The third thing, describe what life feels like now as a believer, right? How would you describe it for yourself, right? What does life feel like now as a believer in Christ. For me, it's kind of a, a mirror image of my first two words, kind of a, a reversal. And I have a sense of purpose in my life, and I have peace. Like, I, I know that God has me here for a reason, and I have peace with God. I have peace with relationships. I just have peace in my heart. So how would you describe it? What are the three words that you would use in your life. Maybe this is something you could talk about with, with your, your friends or your spouse or your girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever is here with you. Maybe uh, in your house church this week, you can just talk about what are the three words that you would use. Now, for me, once you have your three words, I, you just string them together with the gospel. So here's what I shared with those two ladies. Growing up, I, I learned a little about God and about Jesus, but I didn't think it really had that much to do with me. But the older I got, the, the more I felt empty and angry. I was doing all the things that I thought would make me happy and satisfied. But many of those things were wrong and against God. Then one day, a man named Dean told me about what Christ had done for me, how he had died on a cross to pay for all the wrong things that I've done and how he had risen again. He told me that Jesus came to take my anger and emptiness and give me a new life. And that if I would turn to him and believe in him, he would forgive me of everything. I knew in my heart that what he was saying was true. I turned to Jesus that day and asked him to forgive me. I could literally feel the forgiveness of God. I felt clean on the inside for the first time. Since that time, God has given me a sense of purpose for my life. I know he has me here for a reason. He's taken away my anger and given me peace. Simple testimony. Takes a few minutes. It's all about three words. And what I want to know is, how would you describe your life and your story? What are your three words? There have been some times when I'm out in public and uh, everyone's phone starts going off and you get that really, like, really kind of grating alarm sound, right? And your phone starts to go off and, and you know what that is, right? That's, that's called an amber alert. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about? You get the Amber Alert on your phone, and you know, you're at the restaurant, it's like, you're like, ah, you know, freak out. And you're all looking, but what, what that is, is it stands for um, America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response, Amber. 
And it was from a law that George W. Bush signed uh, in 2003 that kind of made provision for that. But the story goes back further than that. In 1996, there was a nine-year-old girl named Amber Hagerman that went for a bike ride with her brother in Arlington, Texas, one night in the evening, and she never came home. And her mom obviously was terrified and calling the authorities and, and, and unfortunately so terribly sad. They found her a few days later. She was deceased. And in response, in, in the midst of the tragedy, the community began to ask questions of like, how can we help prevent people from being lost or missing? So they begin to uh, talk to the local news uh, you know, agencies with the law enforcement, they came up with a system that they called the Amber Alert in honor of Amber. And as the years went on, that began to grow and, and more and more cities began to adopt the Amber Alert system until it was signed into a national law. And now it's, it's, it's an international law. And I was thinking how, how terribly sad it must be for that mom, even today, all these years later, but how the loss of Amber's life resulted in literally thousands of kids being found. And it reminds me of the gospel of Jesus. The father willingly lays down the life of his son so that lost people could be found. I think it's time for the people of God to issue their own amber alert system. We're surrounded by people who do not know Jesus all around us. Last time I checked, there was still only one name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. And that name is Jesus. And they will never hear unless we, as the people, tell. May we become people who tell our story in his story. May we be the kind of people who evangelize the lost. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.